0: This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California or at any time at gbcph.org. This series, as you know, is entitled Knowing Jesus. We mentioned last week that one of the ways to get to know our Lord better is to reflect upon His threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. And last week we looked at Jesus, our prophet, and this morning we want to reflect together on Jesus, our priest. And so to that end, we turn to the book of Hebrews, who is filled with this theme. I remind you that Hebrews was written to uh, a group of mostly Jewish Christians uh, who were being tempted to return to Judaism. Uh, they were living under a lot of pressure uh, due to their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In addition to that, uh, while Jesus is invisible only to the eyes of faith, the temple was still standing, the sacrifices could still be seen, you know, all the bells and whistles, the priests, they were there. And so what he does, he writes this letter, which is really a, it's, it's one long sustained sermonic exhortation to them to persevere Persevere in the faith by looking to Jesus. He says, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In other words, knowing Jesus is what's essential in order to persevere in our commitment to him. Knowing and trusting in his superiority. He's greater than all of the Old Testament Uh, people and ceremonies. They were mere shadows. He is the substance. And By the time we arrive here at the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, the author of Hebrews has demonstrated that Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Joshua. Jesus is greater than Aaron, the high priest, and the entire priesthood of the Levitical priesthood. In fact, Jesus is our great high priest who exceeds them all. The book of Hebrews is the only book that uses the term priest and applies it to the Lord Jesus. It does that many, many times. In chapter 3, verse 1, which we uh, quoted together, he says, uh, As holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So that's what we're looking at this morning now, Jesus our priest. Now last week we asked what is a prophet and it's fair to start again <clears throat> this morning with well what is a priest biblically speaking. Chapter 5 verse 1 says every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices Sins. You notice there, what does a priest do? He acts on behalf of men, on behalf of human beings, in relation to God. In particular, he brings the sacrifices and the gifts. We might say that a priest is simply this. A priest was a mediator between human beings and God. The prophet spoke for God to the people. And the priest spoke to God for the people. It's almost as if the, the prophet had his back to God as he was speaking to the congregation, and the priest had his back to the congregation as he's speaking to God on their behalf, or serving God on, on their behalf. I, that, that's an oversimplification, I know, but I think it's, it's helpful to, to remember. <clears throat> the three main responsibilities, really, of a priest, uh, uh, principally, were these. It was, uh, it was representation. The priest would represent the 12 tribes of Israel when he would go in there with the gems on his, on his uh, outer garment. Uh, representation and advocacy. In other words, he would plead on behalf of the people with the sacrificial blood and intercession. Prayer on behalf. So representation, advocacy, and intercession. And when we reflect on the fact that Jesus is our high priest, we ask ourselves why we need mediator between God and man. Why we need a mediator between us and the holy eternal God. And and I ask you just to remember somebody in the Bible, a man named Job. Remember him? Most of you know the story of Job. You understand remember that. He lost everything. Literally in just one day. He was just devastated. Made me think this uh, last few days of these people in uh, Kentucky with this tornado just wiped out so many homes and their lives were changed overnight. These people with this tornado wiped out towns. and Well, <clears throat> for Job, it, w- it was beyond that, right? It was beyond just simply losing his home. For Job, he lost his wealth. He lost his health. He lost his reputation. He lost all his children. He lost the respect of his wife, you see. And at one point, he has after a long time of suffering, in, in Job chapter 9, it records that he... He wanted to speak to God. He wanted to plead his case with God, you know? And it says there in Job 9, "Um, He is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. The word arbiter can mean umpire. There's no one who can call what's fair between two different parties, between me and God. But God won't bring his trial, his courtroom down to earth. And I can't ascend into the courtroom of heaven, you say. If only somebody could plead for me, is what he says. Well, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the incarnation is just that, you see. That what Job longed for, we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the perfect arbiter. He is the perfect mediator. Paul says there is one mediator between God and man, only one, the man, Christ Jesus. He is the perfect arbiter and mediator between us. Why? Because he does lay his hands on both of us. He is both fully God and also fully man. And this is why, therefore, he is is our perfect high priest, the one to represent us before God. The Apostle John <clears throat> also, without using the word priest, spoke of it this way. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, do you sin? <laughs> I need to see more heads nodding. Do you sin? <laughs> yes. But if anyone sins, he says, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world, you see. We have an advocate with the Father. And you notice there, He doesn't say, with God. Why? Why does He say, with the Father? Because we are still in the family, even when we sin. He is still your Heavenly Father. You have a high priest who advocates for you. Because he is is the righteous one who stands in your place. So that's what we're reflecting on here, the priesthood of Jesus. And and though I just read from chapter 4, what we read together from chapter 2, looking there, what we see here is that the eternal son became a man in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, verse 17, in order to do two things. Reconciliation, to make propitiation for the sins of the people and intercession, help those who are being tempted. So he became a man in order to become a merciful and faithful high priest to two primary ends. Reconciliation, how? By making propitiation for our sins and intercession, giving us help. Giving us help as our, as our brother in, in heaven. So consider how it begins there. It says in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. What do you mean therefore? Right above it says that he didn't come to help angels. He came to help you and me. He came to help human beings. And therefore he had to be made like his brothers, like us. The eternal son had to be made like us, as he says, in every respect. And yet when he says every respect, what he means is this. He means that he was fully human, yet without sin. We're told that elsewhere, right? Romans chapter 8, it says that God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Truly human, you see, but he was without sin. That means he did not sin. He participated in your human frailty. He experienced thirst. He got tired. He he needed rest. He experienced hunger. He experienced pain. But he did all that as a man, all of it, as your substitute. He did not sin under all those pressures. And so what we understand here is that to be a merciful and faithful high priest, the eternal son needed also to add humanity to himself. He needed both natures in order to do so. Why is that? Why did the, the, the perfect mediator <clears throat> between God and man need both natures in order to achieve our propitiation, the forgiveness of our sins? Well, Anselm, Anselm in the 11th century answered, he puts it this way, he needed to be divine, listen, need needed to be divine to be of sufficient value to pay fully and finally for the sin of the world and satisfy the offense against the honor of God, a holy God. He needed to be human, he says, to die as a fit substitute in our place. Divine and human, both. Saying in reverse order, it was a human that sinned, Adam, and therefore it would be a human who would pay the penalty of sin, the last Adam, but if he were to pay for it, if someone were to pay for our sin merely as a man alone, you would never stop paying for it, you see. If you were to pay for your sin, you'd keep paying for it forever. Why? Because our condemnation is an eternal condemnation. You and I, if we pay for our sin, we could never come to the point where we say, it's finished, because the wages of, sin, wages of sin is death, an eternal death under the wrath of God. And so our substitute Our substitute needed to be fully human in order to stand in our place. But he also needed to have a life that had infinite value. And so he also needed to be divine. And that's what Jesus is. He's absolutely both. He's fully God and fully man. That's the mystery and the wonder, the glory of Christmas, the incarnation. Without ceasing to be what he always was, the eternal son became what he had not been, the God man. And he remains the God man from here on. That's what made him able to be our substitute, to be our merciful and faithful high priest. And so the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews showcases both, both the deity and the humanity of Jesus. Jesus of Christ. In chapter 1, it begins, what did it say? We saw this last week. It said, in these last days, God has spoken to us in Son, in Son, who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of His nature. And if we still doubt, He says, He's the one who upholds the universe with the word of His power. You see, He is divine. He is divine. And yet, we come to chapter 5, for example, verse 7. You see there, how fully human he was. Look at verse 7 of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, meaning while he was on this earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Have you ever thought of that? Sometimes we tend to picture Jesus only in his glory, you know. But you understand that he, as a human being, felt, to, felt the temptation and the suffering and the struggle so hard that he cried out to God, the Father, with tears, think of the Garden of Gethsemane, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence, his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. When he says that, it doesn't mean that, he, that Jesus morally improved. It means that he was perfectly qualified to be our substitute because he endured the sufferings that he was sent to endure, unlike the first Adam, without giving in. And so being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is the humanity and the deity of the Lord Jesus. And so it was as both the God-man that he was able to make propitiation for our sins as a faithful high priest, what does it mean to make propitiation? Remember what that word means. It means, to, it means to, to deflect God's wrath away from you by absorbing it himself. To keep the wrath and condemnation of God from coming to you because he absorbs it himself. So God's justice is still fully, fully satisfied. First Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. You think of that. That was your sin. In his body on the cross. He endured the wrath you deserve. Isaiah 53.6 says that the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And what is the result? Romans 8.1 says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. There's no wrath left for you or your sins. Why? Because he has fully absorbed it. In chapter 5 of Romans it says in verse 10, while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So so Jesus came, I mean that is the eternal son came as Jesus into this world as a faithful and merciful high priest to reconcile us to God how by making propitiation For our sins and while we were enemies he did that that is what what is at the peak of Christmas as we celebrate his incarnation you know why he came in and you know Hebrews stresses and you need to get this Hebrews stresses it's important for your conscience that this is a finish work that it is done that there is nothing to add to it by any means be it religious efforts or anything else, be it sacrifices that you might make. There's nothing to add to the finished work of the Lord Jesus. In chapter 3, right at the very beginning, in verse 3 it says, after making purification for sins." Is he still making? No. After making purification for sins. It's an aorist tense, a completed action in the past. He made purification for sins. How do we know he's done? He sat down. (laughs) He's done with that work, you see. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, of the majesty on high. That aspect of the, of the priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ has been completed, brothers and sisters. And how, how did he bring it about? Let me sum it up this way, and then we'll take it apart together. He brought it about, how? Because Jesus is a superior high priest, he offered a superior sacrifice himself in the superior sanctuary, heaven, and he secured a better hope, unobstructed access to God the Father, and a, new, a better covenant, the new covenant. So let's take that apart, reflect on this. How did Jesus, as our merciful high priest, obtain or Uh, Our reconciliation with the Father, because he made propitiation for our sins. How how does that come about? Because Jesus is a superior high priest. How is he superior? Because this high priest did not become a high priest simply because he was a descendant of Aaron. In fact, he wasn't. He didn't come from that line. He was appointed by the Father with an oath, you see. The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110, right here in the middle of chapter 5, in fact. He says, verse 5, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, by the Father, who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2, as he says in another place, you are a priest forever, (laughs) according to the order of Melchizedek, a whole other order of priesthood. And so he is a superior high priest, because God the Father declared him to be, with an oath, And he is an eternal high priest because he is both divine and he is human. And as such, he offered a superior sacrifice. And what was that? Himself. He did not bring the blood of bulls or goats, but he offered himself in our place. It was a singular act to never be repeated. Look at Hebrews chapter 7. Again, we'll be flying all over. Hebrews 7, verse 27 He has no need, speaking of Jesus, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he, Jesus, did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. Yeah, Aaron and the Levites. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, Psalm 110, appoints a son who has been made perfect Forever. He offers Himself as the sacrifice. Look at chapter 9, verse 25 and 26. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not His own. For then He would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. To remove it. To cancel sin. By the sacrifice of himself. Look at chapter 10, verse 10. It goes on. He says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily at his service. He's talking about the priests that were still offering sacrifices in the temple at that time. He says, compare it. He says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Verse 12, but when Christ, our Messiah, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being Sanctified, set apart by his sacrifice. Isn't that glorious, you see? Let that sink into your conscience, you see. To get your head out of the sense of, 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 of religious works to make yourself more, more loved or more approachable to God. It's the work of his son that. Brings us into his presence. So he is the superior high priest who offered a superior sacrifice. And he offered it in a superior sanctuary. Not a, a tent on the earth. But the very presence of God. You understand that the, uh, the earthly sanctuary. Remember the tabernacle and the, the way it was structured. The earthly sanctuary. That was just a model. We said it was the Lego version. Of the real thing. <laughs> and what is the real thing? It's where Jesus is right now. Which is what? The sphere, the sphere of the very presence of the living God. That's where your sacrifice is right now. That's where your intermediator, your mediator is right now. It says, look, uh, for example, at uh, Hebrews 8, 1. The point that we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. The presence of God. Look at chapter 9 verse 1. Even the first covenant had regulations for worship. And an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which uh, were the lampstand and the table. And the bread of the presence is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section. Called the most holy place. Verse 7. In the second only the high priest goes. And He. But once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Verse 11. But, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered into, or he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus is our superior high priest, being declared a high priest by an oath, being both God and man. He offered a superior sacrifice, which was himself, his very own life, and he did so uh, in a superior sanctuary. He was crucified on earth, yes, but remember he was raised the third day and then later he ascended into the very presence of God in the true holy of holies. And as such, what he did is he secured a better hope. Look at chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness having to do with the Old Testament priests for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. (laughs) We draw near to the living God, not to some sort of copy, but to the reality, because the sacrifice of Jesus was not symbolic. It was a genuine and full payment, a propitiation to the Father for your sins. And therefore, we have a better hope, which is what? The hope of eternal life and unobstructed access to the living God in heaven through faith in Jesus, God's Son. Look uh, again, also at chapter 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He secured for us a better hope, the unobstructed access to the Father through the sacrifice of the Son by faith and the Holy Spirit. And lastly, what this also He also secured a better covenant. Look back at chapter 7. I know you're flipping around. but Stay with me. Chapter 7, verse 21, 22. This one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn he will not and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Verse 22 says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The cosigner, the one who guarantees A better covenant. And what is that better covenant? Look at chapter 8, verse 6. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. What covenant is He talking about? He's talking about the new covenant promised through Isaiah and Jeremiah from the Lord that covenant which we belong to uh, through the mercy of God and what are the promises look at verse 10 he says this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord we have been grafted into this covenant I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts I will be their God they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. What he's saying is if you're really in the new covenant, uh, you, you, you were born again, and so you know the Lord. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins. How long? No more. How long is that? <laughs> Forever. I will remember their sins No more. And then he says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Jesus, our superior high priest, made propitiation and reconciled us to the Father, Christians, by offering a superior sacrifice himself in the superior sanctuary, heaven. And obtained a better hope, unobstructed access to the Father for eternity on the basis of becoming the guarantor of a better covenant, the new covenant in His blood. Glory to God. Hallelujah. (laughs) Today we share in the Lord's Supper. And in the Supper we're reminded every time we come to celebrate this salvation that God has given us so freely. That the Lord Jesus said uh, on that night, He said, this is the new covenant In my blood. And that's what we share in Beloved. This is why he had to be made like his brothers. He had to be made like us. In order that he would become a merciful and faithful high priest. A superior high priest. Who would have both an infinite value in his life. And yet be truly human as our substitute. Now, his ministry uh, as our priest, as your priest, did not end with his ascension after his resurrection. He continues to minister as our mediator in heaven, the ministry of intercession. Look at chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. It says, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues Forever. What's that mean? It means that Christ is risen from the dead. He has eternal life. He holds His priesthood pre- permanently because He continues forever. Verse 25. Consequently, because He continues as a priest forever, He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. You know, Most scholars... Take that last phrase there, to make intercession for them, as being causal. In other words, that he is able to save to the uttermost. Why? Because he's always living to make intercession for us. And that's why he's able to save to the uttermost. And what is it, to save to the uttermost? That could be a temporal statement. He could be saying, he saves us forever. It could be a qualitative statement. He saves us completely, fully They need not, we need not choose between them, right? Uh, He does both of those. You are saved if you're a Christian today, forever. There will be no changing this. You will never undo uh, your relationship with God. There is nothing that will separate you from the love of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 8, you see. But you also will be saved fully you're being saved now and that you're being sanctified. You're changing. One day you will be raised from the dead and you will be glorified. So, so Christian, you who approach God through him, who draw near to God through him, are being saved to the uttermost. Why? Because he's living right now, living right now, making intercession. You see. And so the question comes up, well, how does that work? What do you mean he's interceding? How is he interceding? Well, that's been debated, like so many things, right? <laughs> it was Martin Luther who who took the word intercession very literally. It re- really, it means pray, uh, to use words and pray. And, and Luther used a picture of Jesus on his knees, praying, interceding for the saints uh, as he prayed for us in John 17. The other reformer, John Calvin, took this uh, more figuratively. He said that, in essence, he said that, no, 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 his presence there is the intercession. In other words, by being there as your advocate with scars on his hands, right? And, uh, and a wound in his side and scars in his feet. He is in, in the intercession. And therefore, he always renders you acceptable to God. And God looks at you favorably even while you're sinning. Even while you're sinning on this earth. My little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, you see. Again, which is it? Which of these is it? Well, I don't think we need to choose between them again. I think they're both true. And we sing about things like that, don't we? What do we sing today? Before the throne of God above, I have what? A strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. You can say it with me. Whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, what? No tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. So the idea would be this, that... Jesus, as your advocate in heaven, as your advocate in heaven, because he has fully propitiated the Father for your sins, he always renders you and me acceptable to God. Uh, God will always favor us because it's never based on your merit. And therefore, he hears our prayers and he can offer us the mercy and help that we need. Jesus intercedes for us by being there And he intercedes for our help and our mercy through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Romans 8, who groans in our heart and pleads for our capacity to persevere in the faith. And so we look at the blessing of these things. Chapter 2, it says, He was made like us in every respect. Verse 18 And because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Right now, he's interceding and able to help those who are being tempted. How? More explicitly in chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He is sympathetic, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet Without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus is interceding for you right now, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, you can approach the Father in heaven. You can draw near through Jesus Christ by faith. And because he's a sympathetic high priest. Because he's the God-man who suffered in your place. He can give you the kind of help you need. Because he knows the kind of help you need. He understands that. You see? The question arises, I, I know, and it's sometimes we even talk about it. And we say, well, how is it that he can really relate to my experiences in this life i know it says there that he was tempted right and yet without sin but he he, he's divine right he he's eternal he's the son of god how can he possibly relate to me beloved we need to remember that that's part of the glory of the incarnation that's the wonder of the of the incarnation Uh, think this too beloved that the eternal son paul tells us in philippians chapter 2 The eternal Son set aside the independent use of his deity. He did not regard uh, equality with God something to be held on to selfishly. But he added humanity to himself, you see. And he came and he lived the life you ought to live. He lived the life as the last Adam that the first Adam had to live, but didn't. And he did so as a man. As a human being... Relying upon the Holy Spirit. That's just how you and I live the Christian life. And that's how he lived the life that made him the perfect substitute. Qualified, you see, to take our place. A human who was tested as a human by faith, trusting in God, and yet did not sin. That's what made him the perfect substitute for you and me. Uh, Dr. Bruce Ware... uh, Writes Jesus' obedience was not automatic, as though his divine nature simply eliminated any real struggle to believe or effort to obey. I think sometimes we think that. We just well, how did he endure? Well, it's because he was God. Well, how will he understand me? You know? He did not endure in that way. It was not automatic. That's why Hebrews 5.9 says what? That he suffered and he cried out with loud cries and tears to God because he endured the test. He passed the test. He faced the devil's temptation. He faced the trial that the first Adam faced and he held out to the end simply as a man, a human being, relying upon the Holy Spirit, crying out to the Father. With tears and loud cries. That's why he can relate, you see. He may not have been tempted in every expe- specific category as you are because he lived you know, some 2,000 years ago. But he has experienced in his soul and his heart the, a greater power of temptation because where you and I give in, he continues until it just burns out. And he did so as a human being. He suffered greatly in the temptation. You say, well, how was he tempted? He wasn't tempted from the inside as if he had a sinful heart. He had no sinful motivations. But he was tempted from the outside to to give in and not endure the sufferings that the Father had designed for him. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. And so he endured that extreme pressure to give in, to give in and, and not suffer as the Son of God, that the Son of Man who was sent to give His life a ransom for many, knowing that He would feel the pain and anguish of crucifixion and endure it, not because His divinity will keep Him up there, but because He would rely upon the Spirit's grace, just like you and me, and endure the suffering that we endure to a greater extent, you see. He feels the power of temptation more acutely than you and I would ever feel it. And that's why he understands you. You Remember the illustration? It's, I know we've used it before it, it, of, of weightlifters. If a weightlifter comes in the room and lifts up 200 pounds for three seconds, we say, great, he puts it down. I, I know that's much longer than I would, right? Great, I'm happy for you. That's great, Okay. Uh, Another one comes in and he holds up 200 pounds for, for six seconds. Another one comes in, holds up 200 pounds for 10 seconds. Enduring. Picture that as the power of temptation. Jesus came in and he held it up. Held it up and held it up and held it up until the test was done. Never giving in. So he felt the full power of Satan's excruciating temptation to not fulfill his calling as the suffering servant of God. But he didn't give in. He did not give in. Understand, beloved, he may not have been taped in the exact same way as you, but he knows the power that you feel in your life. He knows the sense of of fear you have about relationships breaking down. He knows that. He knows about conflict. He knows about hunger. He knows about losing friends. And he knows about how all this can lead you to want to maybe change. Throw in the towel. With Jesus and say, I, don't, I, don't, I can't, I just can't go on like this. He knows that. And so what do we do about it? There's two responses here in chapter 14. Excuse me, chapter 4. Let us hold fast our confession. That's what we do. And let us draw near with confidence. Because he is who he is. He is Let us hold fast our confession. Verse 14. Since we have, because we have, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens on the way up, right? Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He says the same thing in chapter 10, verse 23. and There he puts it this way. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now what does it mean when he says, hold fast your confession? Well, uh, it means don't lose your confidence. He's faithful. Don't lose your confidence in Jesus. Don't lose your confidence in the gospel. You ever lost your confidence in someone? First hour, I had everyone shaking their heads. Wake up, folks. <laughs> uh, have you ever lost your confidence in someone? Absolutely. It's a, someone you, were, you should be able to trust. Isn't that the way it works in our country, in our politics? We have a representative government. Sometimes you vote for a representative, and he or she gets in, and then what? Violates your confidence. (laughs) They don't do what they said they would do on your behalf. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, when you consider Jesus and who he is, don't lose your confidence in him. Don't waver. Remain doctrinally convicted and, 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 and pure in your faith in him. He is faithful. He's faithful. You can trust him. Secondly, in verse 16, he says, uh, because he's a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, here's our second response. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Right there. Draw near to God. When we worship, what are we doing? We are drawing near to God through Jesus by the Holy Spirit seeking His grace and His mercy towards us. We will draw near to God in a few moments through the Lord's Supper. You draw near to God through prayer. Some of you need to draw near to God for the very first time in your life. Chapter 7 said what? He's able to save to the uttermost, forever and fully. Who? Everyone? Those who draw near to God through Him. You do that through faith. Have you done that yet? Have you done that yet? Have you... Repented of your sin, acknowledge your need, and seen Jesus to be your only hope, and therefore put your faith and trust in Him. That's drawing near to God through Him. It's the only way to be saved fully and forever. Some of you need to do that, my friends. You need to do that for the very first time to confess your sin and, and realize in your heart today, you realize in your heart what you are doing if you reject this. Well you're setting aside is the only hope you have uh, of facing God, not as your judge, but as your father. But this is directed mostly to whom? Christians who are struggling. Christians who are teetering. And he says, listen, because of his high priestly ministry, because he understands you better than you think, draw near to God through him. Pray, beloved. Speak to God. Know that you're heard. Know that you're accepted. Know that when you mess up your life, the right thing to do isn't to go hide and start beating yourself up. And keep beating yourself up. Keep beating yourself up until you think that was enough payment there. That was enough penance. Now I'll start praying. Yeah. Uh, That's the exact opposite of what you should do. You should know that Jesus, because of who he is and what he's done, He's the only person, the only person that will look at you and take you just as you are when your life's a mess and walk you into somewhere where no one else can walk you into, and that is where? Into the presence of the living God. And you say, Father, here's my brother, here's my sister, and he will minister to you and love you. Why? Because he's your advocate. You know, lately there's all this talk again about, uh, that's been going on about um, uh, these billionaires who are taking people up in space, right? Jeff Bezos, Bezos. Want to say bozo, but I won't go there. But um, uh, what's what's he doing? He's taking people up. A, what is it? An eleven-minute ride in outer space, you know? And you say, "Wow, that's amazing." Uh, how how much does that cost, right? He doesn't get near. What the only person can in this world can do in the universe can do, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He will take you by the hand and bring you into the presence of your heavenly Father. And there you can find mercy. What's mercy? It's when God gives you what you need instead of what you deserve. Sometimes we don't go in. Why? Because we're thinking he's more of a dad like I am a dad. (laughs) That he may give me what I deserve. (laughs) Sounds like somebody got a spanking recently. huh? He may give me what I deserve, but that's not the way it works with your father in heaven. You know why? Because what you deserve was given to his son. And so he will find mercy, which is he'll give you what you need rather than what you deserve. And he'll give you grace to help in the time of need. And what that means, timely help. Just at the right time, when you you think it's all a mess, right? When the troubles are coming down on you, if you seek your Father, he will give you the timely grace you need. Such is, beloved, such is what? The fruit of the ministry of our great high priest, Jesus the Son of God, Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man. I pray that the Lord this Christmas will convince you, convince you that you can never outstrip His mercy and love, but that you will focus upon His priestly ministry and draw near to God in worship and adoration, bringing your burdens and casting them at His feet. And now we'll come to communion, we'll come to the Lord's Supper. The table he has prepared. He's the host. We're the guests. He's our advocate. The righteous one. He invites us there. Let's prepare our hearts by singing a song. The solid rock. And then Tom will lead us through times of...